with hula, it's... That we just do one move with our feet. So okay. um, basically it's just two steps and two steps this way. Okay. I think I can handle that. <laughs> I'm standing in the middle of Christy Hager's sunny kitchen, attempting something I never thought I'd be doing while reporting on Superfund, learning how to dance the hula. With the hands, gestures above the waist are about things above the horizon, and things below the waist are about things below the horizon. So Christy have, is a maven you know, of modern hula and an artist. She lives in Missoula now but moved to Montana in 1984 and for over a decade found refuge in a historic skyscraper in Uptown Butte. Her studio overlooked the Berkeley pit and six days a week in every season and in every light, she watched the abandoned open pit copper mine slowly flooding with acid mine drainage. I saw the pit as a, an incredibly beautiful man-made wonder in a way and uh, also it was it was formidable and it it posed a threat to the city as at the same time that it, it had supplied the major economic base for the town it became her muse and she decided to paint it sometimes to take a break or keep warm in her unheated studio she danced to whatever came on the radio one morning it was Joni Mitchell and Willie Nelson singing an old cowboy song called cool water And so I started doing hula to it, and it worked. I think hula is, is you know, it's an embodiment of kind of the oceanic culture, so there's something really sort of fluid and water-like in the whole thing, and so I just thought, oh, this is, this is about the pit. Cool. I mean, it's, a, it's an invocation for one of our most precious commodities. Christy says she was peripherally aware of the Superfund cleanup, but focused on making art. That is, until November 1995, when a flock of migrating snow geese took a rest stop at the Berkeley pit. 342 died. Their esophagi burned from swallowing its acidic, poisonous contents. Then the notion that this is water goes away. It's acid. What's the big plan here? She felt like painting was not enough, but she didn't know what to do about the looming eco-crisis until she was at a hula festival in Hawaii, standing on the rim of a volcano's crater. And I had this vision of, it was really a vision that was like, we're going to do a hula at the edge of the Berkeley pit, and I'm going to get as many people as I can to join me. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I, it, it felt like this is my job and there's no backing out of it. When Christy returned from Hawaii, she whipped up a choreography, teamed up with the Montana Women's Chorus, and began enlisting folks to participate in her art action. I said, I don't expect this to heal the waters because we're there, you know. I expect to draw attention to this and offer our best intentions for this place. And in that way, people will consider it, not turn their back on it or just ignore it. She says it wasn't hard to recruit dancers from Butte and beyond. The idea of doing a Hawaiian hula to a desert song to bless a giant pit filling with acid was unprecedented, magnetic. It was just irresistible. You would tell them and they'd go, oh yeah, I want to do that. And then I'd say, well, show up at, you know. At high noon on a bluebird July day in the year 2000, 153 people from all around Montana gathered on a desolate ledge above the Berkeley pit to offer their secular prayer. Okay, Christy, here we go. As the chorus leader strums her guitar, the crowd of mostly women, swathed in homemade sky blue sarongs and white t-shirts, start swaying and singing in unison. Cool. 
is there dancing right in front, a fresh lay around her neck and a serene smile on her face. It was a glorious moment. It was a perfect day, and it was all over in five minutes. And then we sat around and congratulated ourselves (laughs) and then had a picnic. I must admit, when I first saw the old footage of the Cool Water Hula, I laughed hard. There's something so absurd, almost Dada-esque about the whole scene. But as we gently swayed back and forth and chanted about cool water in her kitchen together that morning, something I never would have expected happened. I got goosebumps. Felt a shiver run down my spine. That was awesome. I'm I'm impressed that you wanted to do that and experience it because, I mean, talking about it's so different. Yeah. (laughs) As I said to you, it's like meditation. You can talk about it, you can think about it, but it doesn't do any good unless you do it. it. Exactly. (laughs) Christy tells me there's a saying that hula is the language of the heart. You just never know who's going to take that whatever struck their heart and run with it through another avenue. I'm Nora Sachs. Welcome to Richest Hill, a podcast about the past, present, and future of one of America's most notorious Superfund sites for Montana Public Radio. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether it's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. For Christy Hager and many others, the eternally flooding Berkeley pit is the poster child for what happens when an extractive industry is taken to the absolute limit. And it's a call to action. Under Superfund, however, the Environmental Protection Agency legally determined the pit's fate back in 1994. The solution to pump and treat the toxic water forever is now going ahead as planned. It's how to clean up the rest of Butte that's frankly a lot less sexy, way more complicated, and still unresolved. Until now. After more than 30 years in limbo without a final cleanup agreement, the ink is drying on Butte's big Superfund deal as we speak. What it means and why it matters has everything to do with what played out when Superfund came to Montana's mining city. So today we're asking, back in those early days of Superfund, who were the players and what was the game? This is episode six, Our Most Cherished Beliefs. Oh, you're winning! You're winning! I'm with our producer, Nick, and we're watching some pros play poker at Joker's Wild Casino in Butte. How's it going, Nick? Confused, <laughs> learning, okay. um, gonna win though. We're not just blowing okay. off steam, I swear. We're trying to get to the essence of poker. Is it about luck, risk, the rush? Poker is a game of skill. 80% of it is skill. What's the other 20%? Luck. Some people will say the math, knowing the numbers, knowing the odds. I think it's more, what it's taught me in life is patience. To be a patient player and... Why are we diving headfirst down this rabbit hole? Because of a writer named Edwin Dobb. Dobb was a contributing editor at Harper's Magazine, a journalism professor at UC Berkeley. But he was first and foremost a butte boyo, as he liked to say, who knew and appreciated the place from whence he came and was deeply proud of it. That's documentary filmmaker Pam Roberts, paying tribute to her friend at a celebration of his life. Earlier this year, Ed Dobb died suddenly, and I never got to know him. But what I learned from those who did was that he was mostly inscrutable and loyal to Butte to the very end. If we remember the people, he would say, the story will be straightforward and true. That was Ed. Dobb wanted the world to be better than it was and believed art could help. He came home after 25 years away to remember what he had tried so hard to forget, just a few years before all those geese were martyred in the pit. When they died, he responded with a virtuosic essay in Harper's called Pennies from Hell. Subtitle, in Montana, the bill for America's copper comes due. This is an excerpt read by William Marcus. 
Like Concord, Gettysburg, and Wounded Knee, Butte is one of the places America came from. Indeed, it can be looked upon as a national laboratory in which the inner workings of a crucial kind of economic activity are laid bare, and U.S. environmental policy is being put to one of its most severe tests. Butte is where we must return, in the manner of a pilgrimage, if we wish to grasp, in full, the implications of our appetite for metals. The environmental policy? Superfund. Before the Superfund law was passed in 1980, extractive industries were allowed to make huge messes, plundering America's natural resources, run away with the loot, and get off scot-free. That's basically what happened in Butte. For most of the 20th century, the mining district here was the largest producer of copper in North America, and it wasn't nicknamed the richest hill on earth for nothing. According to Dobb, almost all of the wealth extracted from it, by then some $25 billion worth, left the state. At its core, Superfund is about justice. The government's righteous attempt to help communities ransacked by the ghosts of industries past reclaim some of that treasure, at least enough to clean up the huge messes left behind. To Ed Dobb, it resembled a high-stakes game of poker. One game, several conflicting interests and competing loyalties. His idea really stuck with me, because as we've discussed previously, Butte was the crucible of some epic labor versus capital, David versus Goliath struggles. But in poker, anyone, rich or poor, who sticks it out, plays their cards right, can win big. In a way, Superfund is a rare chance for the Davids of the world to level up with the corporate Goliaths and take back a share of the wealth. But Butte didn't really see it that way. Here, EPA comes and we say, we're going to name you as a Superfund site. And the city's like, no, it'll kill us. It'll be the end of Butte. That's Sarah Sparks. If we take the Superfund as poker metaphor and run with it, in this game, the Environmental Protection Agency would be the house. And Sarah was the no-nonsense, steel-toed boot-wearing dealer. I was the remedial project manager for the U.S. EPA for the Butte site from 1987 until March of 2015 which means she was in charge of the Superfund cleanup here for almost three decades. She's retired now, and frankly, not super keen on our poker metaphor. I'm a very honest person. I'm not a poker player. Whether you regard it like that or not, I mean, EPA is the one, like, sort of forcing folks to be at the table, right? Like Exactly. We had the power. You have the letter of the law behind you, which was very strong. You will do this, or we, as an agency, will do it and charge you three times what it costs. So what do you want to do? Her name is on thousands of pages of technical documents that fill dozens of fat binders in the Superfund library. Since I wanted to find out what really happened when Superfund came to Butte and how the cleanup took shape, I decided to go straight to the source. Hi, honey. Sarah lives in the same old house she grew up in, way up high on the Butte Hill. And as we sit down on her front porch, one of the first things she tells me is how much she loves mining. I love the dirt, the smell, the amazing things people can do with equipment. I just love all of it. I do. (laughs) Her dream was to work in Butte's underground mines. But she graduated from college right when the goose that had long laid Butte's golden or copper egg was being, well, slaughtered. By the early 1980s, Atlantic Richfield, the successor to the Anaconda Company, had closed all of its mining operations in Montana. Almost overnight, one quarter of Butte's tax base vanished. Thousands of people lost their jobs and moved away. People here were actually saying, Last one to leave, turn off the lights. The door had slammed shut on the mining industry. So Sarah switched gears and got a job with the State Department of Environmental Quality. And then a few years later, at age 31, with the EPA. I was fortunate enough to come back and help clean up the mining. By this point, after a century of fast and furious metal mining, 
Butte's environment looked like sin. Mine waste carpeted the hill and smothered the floodplain below it. Silverbow Creek, a headwater stream of the Clark Fork River, was obliterated. There were zero fish left in it. Once you were in Butte for a storm, the gulches would be orange from the mine waste and the materials running off the Butte Hill. It wasn't exactly a mystery to the regulatory agencies where all the heavy metals along the Clark Fork River had come from. Once the Superfund ball got rolling downstream at Milltown Dam, they knew they'd have to deal with Butte, the source. But because it was both a historic city and an abandoned industrial site, they had to be extra careful how they went about it. Now you have to remember when Superfund started, we're talking Love Canal. We're talking horrific stories. The Superfund law was written for rivers on fire. It was not written for mine sites. Remember, back then, Butte was in survival mode, trying to weather an out-and-out economic disaster. The last thing most locals wanted was to be declared an environmental disaster, too. In the paper, Butte's mayor at the time warned that a Superfund designation would be a terrible black cloud and mean they'd have to kiss mining goodbye. There was dread it would derail the local government's attempts to salvage the economy and recruit a new buyer for the mine. So when outsiders accuse Butte of resisting Superfund initially, they're not wrong. But from what I can tell, it was about fear, not a rejection of cleaning up the environment itself. Legally, to move forward, to conduct the studies in Butte, to go to court against potential responsible parties, they had to become a Superfund site. So the reality was, you've got to get on board with us. To find out the extent of the damage and what kind of hazardous substances were present, EPA first had to screen hundreds of samples from the air, soil, surface, and groundwater. No surprise. Here in Butte, we saw very high levels of heavy metals. Specifically for human health, it was lead and arsenic. For aquatic life, it was copper and zinc. And we saw all four of those, plus other heavy metals, such as mercury. Lead and mercury are both neurotoxins, and long-term exposure to arsenic can cause cancer. We were telling people that they lived in an area that affected their children's health. It scared people so much, and it put them into a denial. That's not right. You don't even know. I grew up here. My father grew up here. There's nothing wrong with me. There was nothing wrong with my father. And there's not going to be anything wrong with my children. You're wrong. I, I can't tell you how many times I heard that early on in public meetings. Sarah says it was a struggle. But after years of trying to fend off EPA, in 1987, the entire Butte area was officially added to the Superfund National Priorities List, the who's who of worst contaminated sites in America. She understood exactly how terrifying that was and what a huge blow the Superfund label would be to the mining city's pride. But folks knew her, trusted her. I was born and raised here. And I could say, I hear what you're saying. I was raised here. I don't think there's anything wrong with me. But then how do you jump from there to, and we should clean this up? Because based on science, it tells us there's a potential for it to happen. And we don't want that to happen to our children. So we need to clean it up. And they'd say, okay. Whether or not it begins as an emergency, every site that is reported to EPA must undergo a site assessment to evaluate the possible hazards posed by the site. Once a Superfund site is born, EPA typically spends a lot of time studying the contamination to figure out how bad it is and how far it goes before deciding what to do about it. Right to the Environmental Protection Agency, Washington, D.C. But that wasn't really Sarah's style. My boss once told me I was like a pit bull. Once I got my teeth into something, I wouldn't let go. Is that true? It is. Since there were so many obvious heavy metal hotspots all over town, her attitude was... Why spend your studying? We know. We already know. Let's just get out there and get it done. 
I like to think of her as the lone cowgirl of Superfund, trying to lasso the dirtiest areas, get this cleanup rodeo going. She felt a real sense of urgency. My major concern was residential properties or areas where children played. You'd look at an area and you'd say, oh, we got to do that right now. Basically, Sarah was doing triage, trying to attack immediate threats to human health in the environment. Like cleaning up homes where kids tested scary high for lead in their blood. Baseball fields where you could dig up mercury by the spoonful. Gulches jammed with tailings. And pile after pile of exposed mine waste. It was a dual path. Clean up, study. Clean up, study. But move forward. Even so, Sarah says in those days, most folks were more concerned about putting food on the table or getting the kids to bed on time than paying close attention to the Superfund cleanup. Sometimes her son was the only one who attended public meetings, and not by choice. Do you know what I used to do to get people to be involved in Butte? No. I'd park a D8 in their neighborhood. That's a big yellow bulldozer. People came out. <laughs> Why do you think that was so effective? Something was going to happen. They saw something was going to happen. They didn't read the ad in the newspaper, but when they saw the equipment, they knew something was going to happen. It worked. (laughs) Eventually, though, EPA realized they could dig and dig and never reach soil that was free of heavy metals. So EPA made a major tactical shift. At the beginning of Superfund and that process, The agency was looking at, well, let's clean everything up. Let's clean it up. Let's get it out of here. Let's make it safe. Well, it didn't take very long to figure out, one, there was no place to take it, and two, it cost way too much money. That's when EPA ruled out totally removing the waste and pivoted to leaving most of it in place and designing elaborate programs to manage it. In the world of mine reclamation, That was a common practice for dealing with the kind of high-volume, low-toxicity waste that Butte had. But for locals, it was confusing. The agency had finally convinced the city that the contamination was a real and pervasive threat. And now they were saying, that old mine dump that's been on the corner of your street forever had to go. However, the pile at the other end of your neighborhood can stay right where it is and will be safe as long as we bury it deep enough. But by law, at Superfund sites... EPA's job is not to go in, find hazardous substances, and clean them up. Everyone wants a clean environment, a safe place to work and to raise our families. EPA understands... It's to find them, calculate what risks they pose, and mitigate those risks. A scientific process, but one that involves some amount of bluffing, because it's full of prediction, uncertainty, and humans making hard decisions. Which means the betting can get messy. How does... EPA or someone in your shoes figure out like how much give and take or like how much to push. It is a game. Some people, you know, you find out after you finish the negotiations, they would have gave you more. Sometimes you find out you would have got a lot less, depending on what's going on. I guess it's a feeling that you get from people. I have no doubt that Sarah took her role as public servant seriously and did what she believed was best for her beat-up hometown. Her conviction beams out of her soul-piercing blue eyes. Her leadership at EPA fundamentally transformed the mining city's landscape. From Sarah's porch, we see rippling fields of tall grass, not the barren hillsides of her youth. That's because the old mine dumps are tucked under protective caps of lime, clean soil, and vegetation. I look out every day and say, thank you, God, for giving me the ability to get up every day and to help make this happen. But like we've said, as the agency in charge of enforcing America's environmental laws, EPA, and by extension, Sarah, had a lot of power over how the Superfund game was played here. And in the face of ever-increasing bureaucracy, Sarah liked to deal fast hands. Let's just get out there and get it done. It doesn't sound fast, but Sarah got all that work we just talked about done in the first two decades of Superfund, while EPA was still figuring out what Butte's final cleanup should be. Fast forward to 2006, and at last, the agency comes out with its 731-page Legal Record of Decision, or ROD. 
basically the cleanup Bible, whose commandments the polluter has to obey. And it turned out that Sarah's need for speed had its drawbacks too. Let me try to explain. In the rod, EPA said, Thou shalt leave waste and place up high on the Butte Hill. And, this is important, thou shalt also leave it in the floodplain below. Not all of it, but more than a million cubic yards of tailings buried near Silverbow Creek in the center of town. The logic was that no matter how much mine waste was removed, there was simply no way to get it all. And since the aquifer there was already ridiculously polluted, Atlantic Richfield was going to have to pump and treat groundwater in that creek corridor forever. If you're leaving all the contamination, not all of it, but a significant amount of contamination in place, what is the value of spending $50 million where you might be able to use it somewhere else where you would see a, a different benefit? Mm-hmm. Do you think EPA made the right call in the 2006 rod? I do. Um, but... <laughs> My name's on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I know that, but I mean, you know. But the state, technically EPA's partner in the game, was not on board. Montana's Department of Environmental Quality took the position that leaving major sources of contamination buried in the floodplain poses a permanent threat to the aquifer, to Silverbow Creek, and to everything downstream. If you don't remove the poison, the injuries can never heal. A group of expert scientists went further, and in a white paper called Cut and Run, EPA Betrays Another Montana Town, they eviscerated the agency's decision and said it was based on inadequate data and a failure to study the groundwater contamination thoroughly. This clash over how to protect the headwaters of the Clark Fork River was no mere skirmish between hydrogeologists. It drove a giant wedge between the Superfund parties, and brought their attempts to negotiate a final cleanup deal grinding to a halt. The state walked away from the table in 2009. They walked away from the table. They basically said to the people of Butte and Montana, we don't care about you. We don't care if anything happens there. We'll let you know when we're coming back. But in terms of the state walking away, I think what they would say to that is, oh, you know, we're trying to protect Montana's water quality, not, oh, we're leaving Butte behind. You know, what was your sense of why the split there? I don't know. All I know is if you walk away and you don't have discussions, you can never move forward. It's that simple. I hear what she's saying, that it's game over if you leave the table. But in Superfund, the knockdown drag out fights are supposed to be between government and industry, not the two agencies in charge of protecting the environment. Here, there seems to have been a disconnect. Instead of being teammates, the state and federal government have been feuding for years over how to clean up Butte's water and whose rules and standards are right. This showdown has had real-life consequences. Without a final deal, there's no roadmap for finishing the cleanup, no commitment, and no deadline. Which means the mining city has had to wait and then hurry up and wait some more. But what about the company being forced to ante up? More on that when we come back. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether it's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. Did I just win a hand? You won. Oh my, oh my gosh, Nick, you won? What are you feeling right now? This is a dangerous feeling to get. So we're back at the Superfund poker table, and one of the players just hopped off a jet, is dressed in a fancy suit, and has stacks and stacks of chips. In our game, that would be Atlantic Richfield. At Arco, Atlantic Richfield, we believe perseverance is necessary to achieve excellence. Quick refresher, Atlantic Richfield is the oil company that took over the Anaconda Copper Mining Company in 1977. Perseverance, it can be the difference between failure and success. The decision to merge with Anaconda seemed like a good idea at the time, but it's one Arco lawyers would later end up calling their proverbial albatross. Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> Had anyone in the 70s known what the cost 
uh, and the challenges this cleanup would be, would have never bought the company in the first place. And, and you know, I know oftentimes my, my many friends in Butte kind of remind me and remind others of the fact that had Arco not bought Anaconda, which, by the way, was on its knees at the time financially, I think the, the outcome for Butte could have been quite different. That's Sandy Stash on the phone from Houston. She was there recently for a work trip. Hi, Sandy. Oh, hi. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm fine. Can you hear us okay? Sandy is currently an executive vice president with London-based Tullow Oil and has more than 35 years of experience in the energy and mining sectors. She started out as a drilling engineer in Alaska with Atlantic Richfield, then made a career-defining move to Butte in 1989. Really, over a very short period of time, I wound up being really the, the general manager um, for the cleanup. Not just of the Butte Hill, but of the mega complex of Superfund sites spanning 140 miles of the upper Clark Fork River Basin. Sandy was the face of Atlantic Richfield back when everyone was still discovering how Superfund worked or didn't. Last time we checked, Atlantic Richfield closed up shop in Montana in 1983. So why did the company still have an office in town? Well, the Superfund law is intended to make polluters pay for the environmental damage they cause. But if the original owner of the contaminated site, like the Anaconda Company, is long gone, Superfund has some interesting provisions to help EPA make sure the cleanups get done anyway. I'm going to get myself in deep water here. I'm practicing law without a, without a license. But retroactivity, you know, the idea that a person or an organization can be held liable for something they didn't do but that occurred generations before is quite unusual in, in um, U.S. law. Quite unusual is quite an understatement. Retroactive liability meant that Atlantic Richfield, which operated Anaconda's crumbling mining empire for just five years, was now being punished for more than a century of environmental crimes, most of them committed decades before environmentalism was even a word. The oil company was also filthy rich, worth around $27 billion when British energy Goliath BP acquired it in 2000. That would usually be a good thing, right? Well, the way Superfund works... Even if many parties are responsible, those with deep pockets pay the bill. Arco was now the primary, potentially responsible party for the Upper Clark Fork River Basin sites. In Superfund lingo, that's an individual or entity who can be held liable for the cleanup. From Atlantic Richfield's perspective, that meant they were now on the hook not once, but twice for the cleanup, because the new law also levied attacks on chemical and petroleum companies like Arco which put the fund in Superfund. In fairness to my predecessors, that probably didn't seem all that fair. I've heard several local activists accuse the ARCO suits of dragging their heels and fighting Superfund every step of the way in the beginning. And from what I can tell, that checks out. We used to joke that when when a company found itself uh, in the situation that Arco uh, found itself in, there there was sort of, you know, kind of four steps, shock, anger, rejection, acceptance. And um, I think I arrived sort of after the shock phase, but but certainly a, a bit in the sort of anger, rejection. And, and I like to think part of my leadership was, was to move us toward acceptance. Acceptance is one way to put it. Resignation might be another. Because first, the company had to deal with a major pending lawsuit from the state of Montana. I'll spare you the gory details. But basically, EPA attempts to hold polluters accountable for the basic cleanup, or remedy, of a site. Under a different arm of Superfund, states can seek damages for injuries to their natural resources and the cost of restoring or replacing them. So Montana did just that, and sued ARCO for over $700 million to try to make the upper Clark Fork River Basin whole again. That created a dynamic that was quite challenging, I think, both for the, uh, the company and for the governments. Sandy says that didn't change until ARCO settled a large part of the lawsuit in the late 90s and set up a framework for future settlements. The line between remedy and restoration can get blurry, but these settlements do not address the basic cleanup in Butte. Anyhow, from then on, the company moved away from litigation, towards trying to resolve issues and get down to work. Sandy says that's where they got creative, took some risks. Some cleanup solutions pioneered here in Montana 
like redeveloping brownfields, wound up being exported across the country. Instead of putting fences up, mine dumps were transformed into an elite golf course in Anaconda, a new baseball field in Butte. The thought, again, that we were going to spend, um, you know, at the end of the day, well north of a billion dollars and have really nothing to show for it as far as something that the community could use again it seemed ludicrous. Sandy says there needed to be something in it for everyone. Mutual benefit, if you will. That's when Eric, our editor, who was also on the call, jumped in with a question. I'm just putting myself, you know, in the shoes of a, of a shareholder or an investor in Arco at the time and trying to imagine the, the officers of the company coming to me saying, well, you know, we're going to take a billion dollar hit for this liability that we didn't create, but it's okay. It's going to be good for the company. And, uh, you know, ultimately, we need to do this for the people of Butte. And I, I don't see a whole lot of shareholders, like, raising their hands and saying, yes, let's do that. No, I think, I think you're probably very accurate. And again, I wasn't, I wasn't there at the time or, or, or privy to those conversations. But, I, but she says I, there was a growing realization across corporate America about just how long the arm of the Superfund law was and how best to deal with it. Plus, let's be real. The law also had embedded in it, you know, some pretty stiff penalties for saying no to a cleanup order. Certainly the law had not only a long reach, but had uh, quite a few deterrents in it from, from companies just, just you know, not, not doing the cleanup. Like getting fined up to $25,000 a day for violating cleanup orders, or being forced to pay triple the costs if EPA has to step in and do the work. What was at stake for the company in Superfund? Was it just money? Was there anything else at stake? Reputation, you know, so certainly money, reputation, and I think also the the sort of getting it behind you because, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, Superfund wasn't our business. And so resolving the liabilities more quickly allowed the company to, to get on with its life or get on with what it did. I'm guessing that back when Sandy worked for Atlantic Richfield doing PR, She was very good at her job. Talking to her is a little like talking to bulletproof glass. But our conversation did get me thinking about that part in Pennies from Hell, when Ed Dobb writes, Today, bearing the social and physical scars of one of the most long-lasting and lucrative mining runs in the world, a run that is not yet over, the Hill contradicts some of our most cherished beliefs. That history is necessarily progressive. That any problem is fixable given enough goodwill and technical ingenuity, and, closest to home, that it's possible to consume immense quantities of raw materials without creating ethical and environmental dilemmas of immense consequence. Sandy Stash has confronted those consequences head-on, in Butte and around the globe, since we had her on the horn, We asked her what she thinks the public needs to come to terms with. She urged us all to dig deeper into where the things we use come from, where they end up, and what impacts they have. Even the metals we'll need to transition away from fossil fuels. You know, a lot of them are coming from parts of the world where, you know, it would be easy for society to kind of, um, you know, have a bit of of a blind spot or not come to understand the nature of that extraction. And I think, again, it's incumbent upon all of us to understand that and hold countries and governments and companies to account to do that in the very best way possible, um, socially and environmentally. As the clear successor to Anaconda and the party with the deepest pockets, Atlantic Richfield wound up footing most of the bill for cleaning up Butte's spoiled landscape. And though Arco was reluctant to bet, they've nonetheless continued to play. But the former oil company wasn't the only one snared in Superfund's retroactive liability trap. There was a chance that Butte taxpayers would end up having to pony up, too. It is September, and it's raining very hard. I'm outside my house watching an end-of-summer thunderstorm roll through. Stormwater is one of those things that used to make my eyes glaze over. But right now, I'm trying to visualize the long, strange trip each drop of water falling from the sky used to take once it hit the Butte Hill, long before the cleanup started or Superfund was even a twinkle in Congress's eye. 
Luckily, that's John Sessa's bailiwick. When all of the mine waste were exposed, when it would rain, it would rain all over these uh, exposed and barren soils, and, and those soils would collect in stormwater in our system, and the, the water would find its way in, in Silver Bowl Creek. And it would have plenty of metals in those sediments that got carried away with the stormwater. John is Butte's longtime planning director and Superfund coordinator, and a state senator to boot. He likes to say, and it's probably true, that... I forgot more than most people ever know about Superfund. I mean, it, it is, uh, it's just not part of, of anybody else's lives. But, I think but John's been a critical player in the cleanup here, almost from the beginning, which means he's become an expert on the city's stormwater, out of necessity. Under Superfund law, if you've ever owned, operated, generated, or transported any of the hazardous waste at a site, like all those metals John just mentioned washed through Butte's stormwater system, you too can be held responsible. And that's exactly what happened to Butte Silverbow County. After watching almost all of the hill's riches carted away by the Anaconda Company, Butte's local government was now potentially getting stuck with a big chunk of the tab for cleaning up the historic mess. To John and the county, that was not cool. Their response was, Hey! We can't be held accountable for the fact that the historic mining waste found its way into our stormwater system. I mean, we weren't doing anything that wasn't a normal governmental function. Just about every city in Montana drains their stormwater directly into the nearest waterway. The difference in Butte is that the receiving stream is a skinny creek about the width of my living room, not a major flowing river like the Clark Fork in Missoula, or the Yellowstone in Billings. And, yes, well, the extraordinary amount of metals in it. You know the whole, dilution is the solution to pollution? That's not a thing here. Anyways, the county's resistance fell on deaf ears. And in 1991, Butte Silver Bow was officially added to the list of potentially responsible parties for the Butte Superfund site. John says it was then that it really came home to roost for me, personally, and certainly for our community. But in typical Butte-tough fashion, they rolled with the punches, didn't whine about it. You dealt the hand, and you deal with it. At first, being named a potentially responsible party seemed like it was going to be a losing hand for the county. Uh, that's not good. Have the best hand. <laughs> yeah, I see that. But unlike most other Superfund communities around the country, the local government now had a seat directly at the table a shot at economic and environmental justice. John understood the significance of being dealt in right away. While there were limits to what EPA could legally force Atlantic Richfield to do, if the county was smart, played their cards right, they could wrangle more than just a meat and potatoes cleanup. They could get some gravy on top. I, I would quibble a little bit with the poker because a poker game in my world is especially now with the world series of poker and all this texas hold'em stuff is there's one big winner everybody else loses do you play poker i play a little bit of poker yeah (laughs) (laughs) poker or not sesso agrees there are stakes to the cleanup and that the county's role is extra complicated talk about competing loyalties on the one hand they're expected to advocate on behalf of the public for the best cleanup possible at the same time They're trying to protect taxpayers from paying for it by cooperating with the rich and powerful oil company, Atlantic Richfield. To me, that sounds really tricky, like walking a tightrope. John says it's a balancing act. Our job was to find the middle. What's the best thing we can do by the resource without having any of our residents pay for it? And what are we going to get out of it? I didn't fully appreciate what the county's philosophy has meant on the ground until I went to visit one of those brownfields, where Butte Silver Bow spun mining straw into land use gold. It's a blustery Saturday morning, and forget Butte's historic district. The Copper Mountain Sports Park, a couple miles south of town, is where the action is. Hundreds of people bundled up in fall coats, are crowding the freshly chalked fields, cheering on hordes of kids in pennies and jerseys, all scrambling after footballs. 
on the sidelines, I bumped into... It was Donald Sullivan. Okay. I got two grandsons out here, Colton and Trey. Donald's an older guy, friendly. I told him I was here chatting with folks about what they know about the site, um, if you remember what was here before, what you think of the complex now. Well, it's such a huge change. This used to be the Silver Bowl landfill of Butte, and they had old wrecked cars and everything here. I grew up here, and we'd come out and get parts for our cars and things like that. But throughout the years, they came in here and just reclamated everything. And it's just such a turnaround because it was such an eyesore back in the day. What used to be an eyesore is now, excuse me, a site for sore eyes. Beyond the organized chaos of the football games, there's a sea of baseball fields, grandstands, basketball hoops, volleyball courts, a fully stocked snack bar, even a driving range. It's fancy. You're pretty happy with the outcome. Oh, I'm ecstatic about it because the for the little guy football to be able to come out here and five, four or five teams be able to play at one time and parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles and kids get a be out here and enjoy themselves, yeah. you know. What Donald didn't seem to know, and what I couldn't find a sign explaining, is that the sports complex sits on top of something more toxic than a city landfill. It's called Copper Mountain, because underneath the manicured grass carpet is a mini mountain of tailings, the repository for two huge mine waste cleanups in town. This project is a result of a trade-off Butte made with Atlantic Richfield to potentially save the company some money and get some of that gravy. We said to ARCO, we'll consider the idea of putting the Colorado tailings there, but we want something out of it. Well, what do you want? Well, we, we'd like a, 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 a new park. And it was like, okay. And so I think they ended up spending three and a half million bucks on the park. And the bargain was, we'll build it, you take care of it. This kind of local control is at the heart of CESA's real politics strategy towards Superfund. Because when the time came to get involved in the cleanup, the county, whose main source of livelihood evaporated when Arco shut down the mines, simply did not have the financial resources to deal with it. John says one option was to be a passive bystander to all the work EPA was ordering Atlantic Richfield to do. But we're the people that the public calls when they have a concern about their community, about their environment. And we wanted to take the responsibility and the accountability for implementing these programs because we had more confidence in ourselves as a local government that we were going to be here in the forever. I don't know about ARCO. I don't know about ARCO's contractors. And all I know is if there's enough money in a trust for us to perform these duties, and we have the control over the implementation of those duties and the performance of those duties, I think that the community's better off. And we then, when somebody calls and says, hey, I, I got a problem with this, well, we deal with it. In 2006, Butte Silver Bow and Atlantic Richfield formalized their we'll do it, you pay for it agreement and cut their own deal on how to divide up the cleanup costs and obligations. In it, the county set aside about $35 million from ARCO to take care of the remedy on the hill. That amount should pay for $150 million worth of work over the next century. But when it came to choosing sides in the brawl between the state and the feds over how to protect Butte's creeks, the county sat that hand out and said they weren't qualified to make that decision. John's generally pretty gregarious, but he bristles a bit when I ask him if anyone has ever accused Butte Silver Bow of being in the oil company's pocket. He says yes, a few have, but the county is not beholden to ARCO, and whoever makes that claim just doesn't have all the facts. I believe that at the end of the day, the decision to work with ARCO has benefited our community far more than the, the alternative, which would have been to say, no, we're not working with you, we're not going to be in the room, we're not going to be part of the decision making, and we'll just take our medicine when it's given to us, and if we don't like it, we'll spit it out and we'll fight over it. As we walk along the top of the world's trail up on the hill, 
through a reclaimed mine yard, which, thanks to Superfund, is now a bucolic urban park with a killer view. John says he challenges anyone to prove that Butte's not better off today than when the cleanup first started. I, I don't know about you, Nora, but uh, I've been all over this state. I don't think I want to live any, anywhere else in Montana than in, in Butte. So this is where uh, we chose to live, uh, my wife and I, and uh, we're not going anywhere. Okay, Christy, here we go. A one, two, three, four. Once Butte faced the reality of being a Superfund site, there was hope it would help the mining city deal with its century-old industrial mess and move on. But this poker game has now lasted a generation and counting. 32 years since the first hand was dealt, the cleanup still isn't over. As the years go by, the stakes get higher. For the environment, yes, but especially for the people of Butte, who will be here long after the other players have left town and will have to live with the outcome of this game forever. In the words of Butte's beloved literary son, Ed Dobb, For it is those whose lives begin and end in Summit Valley, whose dead are buried here, who are in the best position to take the full measure of hard rock mining by virtue of their long intimacy with it. When the bill comes due for the metals this country consumes, the costs are not apportioned according to use. They are paid in Butte and places like Butte. The hill is unique among such sites in that it is both a mining district and a town, a culture, as well as a highly disturbed geological formation, and the two are inseparable. The nights are cool and I'm a fool Each star is a pool of water cool. Why has it been so hard to end the game and finish the cleanup? And when are the players finally going to lay their cards on the table? That's next time on Richest Hill. Richest Hill is a production of Montana Public Radio. Nora Sachs is our host and reporter. I'm Nick Mott, our producer. Eric Whitney is our executive producer. Josh Burnham is our digital editor. Our theme music is by Dublin Gulch. Other original music composed and performed by Jonas Benetta, Oren Pearson, and Crystal Fantasy. Special thanks to Christy Hager, Sarah Sparks, Sandy Stash, John Sesso, William Marcus, Judy Fiel, Mary Kay Craig, Ellen Crane, John Reese, Susan Dunlap, Bill McGregor, Matt Vincent, Tom Malloy, Robin Bullock, John Ray, Pat Monday, Eric Hassler, Matt Haynes, Barbara Miller, Greg Mullen, Joe Veronka, Pam Roberts, Suzanne Dobb, and NPR Story Lab. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and stay up to date at ButtePodcast.org.